You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. What's up, everybody? You're listening to The Grindstone Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue University. As always, I'm your trusted host, Immediately, that was a stretch. I'm your host, anyway, Matthew Kroll, Academic Program Manager in the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue. And with me again in studio is my colleague and good friend, postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue, Michael Augustine. Michael, welcome back. Happy to be here. And today, we are introducing the fifth and final talk of our PatFest series, um, the talk today was given by Dr. Richard McKeerahan. So just as a reminder, PatFest was the, the going away party, a conference in honor of the work and career of Dr. Patricia Kurd, who retired from our department last spring. That would be spring of 2019. Um, we had six speakers invited. We have five of the talks. And today is the last of the recorded talks we were able to get uh, by Dr. Richard McKeerahan and I must say, Michael, I'm going to need you to help me through this one because this was a great talk, as were all of the talks, um, but very sophisticated, and I feel like really got into some, uh, some, some fine-grained arguments, maybe, or aspects of the text. That's exactly right. So Richard's talk is titled An Aristotelianizing Parmenides. It has to do, <laughs> yeah, right. It has to deal with the poem, or at least the fragments that we have of the poem of the historical figure Parmenides, who lived in the earlier part of the 5th century BCE. It deals with an interpretation of the poem as a whole, which naturally raises questions of translation, questions of how certain arguments are supposed to work, questions of relations between particular parts of the poem, there's a lot going on in this talk. It is one of the more technical talks I've seen Richard give. Nice. Now, it's been a while since I've read Parmenides' poem, but if I recall correctly, and, and I think this is partly what Richard wants to clarify, but if I go back in time to reading this as an undergrad, um, I remember the poem itself being very dense and frankly and confusing to me, if I'm being completely honest. Um, but if I recall correctly, in a sort of layperson's, you know, synopsis of the poem, Parmenides is trying to give a, an account of of being, of what is genuine being. Is that close? That's right. Uh, the poem opens with a journey by a kuros, a young man, to meet this goddess who is going to reveal to him the way things are, but also reveal to him mortal opinions about the way things are because it's necessary that he learn those two. And she begins by saying there's two routes of inquiry. There's the route of what is, and there's the route of what is not. Mm -hmm. And only one of these can be investigated, the route of what is. The route of what is not, you can neither begin nor accomplish it, nor speak, nor think about mm. it, because it is not. Right, right. So Parmenides is taking up the positive approach, 
inquiry into what is. That's right. Um, to set up Richard's talk, what are some of the sort of traditional interpretations of, of the poem? Debate largely centers on fragment eight of the poem, okay. where a series of arguments, well, let's use that term loosely, okay. are given for various characteristics of what is, the thing to be investigated on the first route of inquiry. What is is ungenerated, it's imperishable, it's indivisible, it's unchanging, it's one, it's whole, it's complete, like the ball of a well-rounded sphere. And it's been thought in the past that it's a consequence of these being features of what is that according to Parmenides, there's one and only one thing that exists, mm -hmm. a position that's sometimes called numerical monism. Okay. And Richard is offering a different interpretation, one that is, as the title suggests, indebted to Aristotle and what Aristotle's up to in the metaphysics, investigating being qua being, what it is for something to be, which doesn't preclude there being many things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so it could be the case if one takes this perspective on what Parmenides is doing, what we're investigating is what it is for something to be a genuine entity, and there could be many such genuine entities, and Parmenides wouldn't be saddled with the possibly bizarre view that there's one and only one thing that exists. So if I'm understanding correctly, then Richard's talk is able to, or he positions his interpretation in such a way that he's able to maybe overcome some of the problems with or the the issues the quandaries with you know previous interpretations mm -hmm. um while also perhaps recovering parmenides from a position based on previous interpretations that seems in itself untenable in some way well it's it's worth saying that there are many people today that hold the numerical monist reading of okay. parmenides uh, one challenge that that reading confronts is in the second part of the poem, Parmenides goes on to offer a cosmology. And you might wonder, if there's one and only one thing that exists, why would you do this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Richard's reading has an advantage of saying that, look, uh, it's not the case that you're going to be able to get at what it is for something to be a genuine entity using your senses, because your senses tell you that things are changing they come to be, they perish, they're divisible. To find out what a genuine entity is, you have to use reason alone. Mm -hmm. But this doesn't mean that the senses are entirely useless. You can use them to construct, in addition to what reason tells you, the best possible cosmology, um, given what it is for something to be a genuine entity. And this is not to say that there's not still problems for this way of approaching it, but it does allow for there to be an, a cleaner fit between Interesting. the first part of the poem where we're thinking about what it is for something to be and the second part of the poem where we're doing cosmology. And so is it that sort of use of reason aspect, which is the, the Aristotelianizing that um, Richard is, is speaking to in this paper? That's, that's part of it, though there are several fragments, extant fragments of the poem where Parmenides, through the goddess, makes quite clear that the senses are deceiving, mm -hmm. that there's no true reliability in them. So in some ways, one can think of 
Parmenides as anticipating the project that Aristotle would take up in the metaphysics. Interesting. Michael, I have to tell you, this is so helpful. This has helped me understand the talk, you know, retroactively. Um, and I think hopefully this will help listeners now understand what was going on in this talk. Not that they couldn't have otherwise, but really this is so helpful. And for me, you added so much clarity on this talk. The title of the talk is, again, An Aristotelianizing Parmenides. An Aristotelianizing <laughs> Parmenides. And this is Dr. Richard McKeerhan. That's right. Okay. Uh, so... I'll just read this thing. I suppose that practically everyone in this room has views about Parmenides, and I'd be surprised if any two of us agree completely. I used to be content with an interpretation that was largely based on the views of my doctoral supervisor, G.E.L. Owen. This was the basis of the Parmenides chapter in the first edition of Philosophy Before Socrates. A few years later, Pat Kurd's book on Parmenides came out. As she may recall, my initial reaction was something like, well, you might be right. Um, but I doubt it came right after. <laughs> <laughs> but, I did, but I didn't see any reason to change my ideas. Yet, these things take time. About a decade later, Pat astonished me by asking me to write the Parmenides chapter in this. Um, uh, I decided to focus on the arguments in fragment eight, and in working through the text more carefully than before, I came to see things differently. First of all, I came over to Pat's side on the question what Parmenides means when he says that what is is one, and my close reading of fragment eight confirmed that inter interpretation. I'll always be grateful to Pat for giving me this opp that opportunity to see the truth at last. At the same time, I was revising philosophy before Socrates for a second edition, and thanks to Pat and the Oxford Handbook chapter, <clears throat> Parmenides came out looking very different from in the first edition. Shortly afterwards, I began teaching at UC Santa Barbara, where for the first time in my career, I had the luxury of devoting an entire course to the pre-Socratics. Also, for the first time, I had regular engagement with strong graduate students. This gave me the opportunity to try out some new ideas, which I did in the extra hour a week I met with graduate students in the course. A couple of years ago, a graduate student named Michael Augustine, here present as a faculty member and organizer, pushed me hard on some new thoughts I'd had on Parmenides. And in my mind, this places him in the same category as Owen incurred as helping my thinking about Parmenides. I'm grateful to Michael and Pat for this opportunity to present my new interpretation for the first time, and I can't think of a more appropriate occasion. As I see it, the paper is an extension of the line of thought that led to the interpretation in Philosophy Before Socrates, edition two. I've got a label for some ancient philosophy texts, swamps. Texts you get stuck in and can't get unstuck. You know, like Metaphysics Zeta, Posterior Anal Analytics two. Plato's sophist, and of course his Parmenides. I used to place Parmenides' poem in this category, but no longer. Not that I think for a minute that I've managed to extricate myself, and certainly not because I've lost interest. Rather, for Parmenides, I found that the swamp Im image is inadequate. It's not a swamp where you get stuck, but you can see where you came from and where you want to get back to. Rather, it's a black hole. Get near enough and it sucks you in and there's no bottom, no end to it. I've also come to believe that Parmenides' fragments can support very many interpretations, which explains why new interpretations appear so frequently. 
I've also learned that once I, once I come to read a text in a certain way, the text in a certain way, that I think makes sense, I'm hard to budge from it, even though I'm willing to grant that the other, other interpretations are probably just as good. This remains you know, the way I want to read it. Maybe some of you have had the same experience. So all I hope to do today is to present you with another way to look in at Parmenides. And I'll be eager to hear what you think. I'll be content if I can get this interpretation on the map. To do this, I'll need to show why that my Aristotelian reading is compatible with the text. It will help if I can show that this reading also gives plausible solutions to one or more of the problems traditionally associated with Parmenides. I call it an Aristotelianizing interpretation. I like, first because I like long words with many syllables in them, but secondly, because I'm proposing to account for some of Parmenides' views along lines which Aristotle took up well over a century later in his Metaphysics. Prominent in this reading are Aristotle's conception of metaphysics, or first philosophy, as the science of being qua being, and his distinction between metaphysics and physics, and between the subject matters of those two sciences. Prominent, too, is the difference in the two philosophers' philosophical approaches and methods, in particular that Aristotle typically resolves philosophical problems by drawing distinctions, and that was a practice that was unknown to Parmenides. Any interpretation of Parmenides has to take a stand on a large number of disputed points. In order to focus on the subject of this paper, I'll simply state what, what stands I've taken on a couple of disputed points that are closely related to the ones I'm talking about here. I've given my reasons for most of these in previous publications, particularly the Oxford Handbook chapter and the second edition of Philosophy for Socrates. The interpretation I'm putting forward is new to me and I believe to the world. In particular, it differs crucially from the traditional view, which I originally accepted unquestioningly, that Parmenides argued that nothing changes or moves, and in fact, there's only one thing. It also accepts the view favored in my post-Pat publications, and first, I think, by Pat herself, that Parmenides is not a numerical monist. That is, that, sorry, that is, um, uh, when he says that what is is unique and one, he doesn't mean that there's only one unique thing that exists, but that each thing that is, however few or many things that are, that are there may be, is a single thing. Is that about right? Is that the, is that the, the line? Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, so here are three preliminary points. First, Parmenides makes several claims about the senses, but never says that they're false. He says five things about them. This is on your handout. Uh, they yield opinions, not knowledge. There is no true reliance in them. They lead us to have the opinion that the objects of opinion genuinely are being always indeed all things. They lead to habit that's based on experience. And that the, he says that the eye is aimless and the ear is echoing. But notice that he does not say that our eyes are blind and our ears are deaf. My second preliminary point concerns my translation of uh, B, uh, fragment two, uh, line three and five. Um, and again, that is on the handout there. Uh, my proposed translation is different from the usual translation by, not, by omitting the subject it that's normally translated. Um, and also uh, uh, in B25, where uh, the uh, crayon is usually translated as is necessary, a modal translation. I take it that it's more of a, um, I take it that is not is right is the, is the translation for that. 
let me call attention to the two main differences here. Translating creon esti as it is right instead of it is necessary avoids the anachronistic modal interpretation favored by Wedin and others. It is right is more in line with Parmenides' conceptual space where what prevails are images of justice, bonds, and what is right, themis, rather than the terminology of deduction, consequence, premises, and conclusions. Here we need to bear in mind that the early meaning of ananke, which occurs elsewhere in the poem, is force or constraint rather than logical necessity. Esti and ukesti can certainly be translated is and is not. That's what they mean in a lot of their occurrences. Um, the, these translations point us in a different directions from the translations it is and it is not. When we see it is, our intention is inevitably drawn to the subject. We ask what is, and perhaps, and I should say, perhaps because it's so hard not to be influenced by Plato's and Aristotle's interpretations, we want to know how many of them are there. But as the sequel shows, Parmenides' interest is in the verb, not the unexpressed subject. He never indicates how many things there are, or whether he's talking about fundamental entities, or all physical objects, or a wider range of things that might include any kind of conceivable entities, numbers, emotions, thoughts, and more. I think it's mistaken to be hasty and plumping for any of these possibilities. Eliminating the it from it is not has another advantage, too. It avoids committing Parmenides to a mismatch between language and reality. If I'm told that something is, I can reasonably ask, what is it? Meaning, what kind of thing it is? This is Aristotle's TST question. If the answer is an animal, I can go on to inquire what kind of animal it is, and, and so forth. In this way, I can go on to investigate it. But if I'm told that something is not, well, where's the thing? What handle do I have to go on to investigate it? If is is taken to be the copula, then if Parmenides means by is not that no predicates holds of something, then no description of what is not is true, and nothing can be known about it. If it's taken to mean exists, the existential interpretation, then, like Aristotle, Parmenides may be asserting that what is not cannot be known. Think of Aristotle's goat stag, cannot be known, no scientific knowledge of that. And again, no, no predicate can be truly asserted of it. And if, I want to say on the one hand, on the other hand, this is the third hand now, and if on the third hand, as I think, Parmenides did not have in mind either the is of existence or the is as a use of is as a copula, then neither of the two accounts I just offered reflects what he has in mind. But one thing he should not have in mind is that all negative predications and nothing but negative predications can be made of what is not, whereas all affirmative predications and only affirmative predications can be made of what is. I say this because many of the ways he describes what is are negative in meaning and form. We, this came up in discussion yesterday. Um, ungenerated, unmoving, unceasing, not divisible, to name a few. I suppose that he means that what is not cannot be described at all, which goes well with his insistence that what is not cannot be known. As Gertrude Stein once famously wrote about her and my hometown, Oakland, California, there's no there there. It would seem to follow that what is not is simply nothing. It's actually called Meiden once at B810. But nothing is not, although its surface grammar is okay, subject followed by negated verb, is an odd and seemingly paradoxical statement, and definitely one that does not open up any route of investigation. 
This may be what Parmenides himself has in mind at the end of fragment B2 when he says, you cannot know what is not, nor can you declare it. The third preliminary point has to do with the subjects Parmenides supplies for esti and ukesti subjects in many, sub, uh, ukesti in, in many places. Um, to aeon is given as a subject for esti, and to me aeon, and once to me den for ukesti. I maintain that he does this when the grammar of a sentence requires a noun phrase or an object of a preposition, functions which verbs cannot fulfill. They are dummy subjects, what is and what is not, referring generally and indefinitely to anything that is or, and counterfactually to anything that's not, without revealing anything at all about how many such things Parmenides may have recognized. Also, as we follow Parmenides along the route of truth, it soon becomes clear that in talking about what is, Parmenides is not offering an account of, a, of the physical perceptible world. We all agree, I hope, that he's doing something else and something entirely new. My proposal is that he's exploring what is true of something that is, anything that is, anything that is, but not its physical properties as earlier thinkers had done. Unlike earlier thinkers who limited their perspective to the world revealed by the senses, Parmenides holds that the senses are unreliable in what they report. For all we know, the senses don't reveal everything that is. The range of things we can perceive may be only a small fraction of all the kinds of things that are. Parmenides' question, I propose, is not how many kinds of things there are or what kinds of things there are, but what do we know about anything that is, not prejudging in any way what kinds of things there are. In particular, not restricting the inquiry to things that the senses reveal, or even paying special attention to these things, since the senses are misleading and can't provide a secure basis for inquiry. Parmenides begins not by listing candidates for things that are, but with a dichotomy that sets the direction for his discussion. He declares that there are two theoretically possible routes of investigation. I know he doesn't say it that way. <laughs> okay. uh, is and is not. And he immediately draws a powerful conclusion. It's impossible to investigate is not, since what is not, that is anything that is not, cannot be known or even described. His next main move, this is in fragments six and seven, is to reject the authority of the, of the senses. He does this by implicating them in what is not. Relying on their misleading senses, people think what is to be and not to be the same and not the same. Whatever this oracular pronouncement means, it amounts to the charge that trusting the, the sen their senses leads people to commit a serious er error that results in major confusion. It may seem banal to suggest that Parmenides has in mind instances like where someone thinks today she's happy and yesterday thought she wasn't happy, and therefore thinks both that she is happy and not happy, and that's somehow contradictory. In other words, that the same thing herself is both the same as she is now and not the same as she was yesterday. And there are lots of different ways you can come up with that kind of, as it were, cheap kind of contradiction, apparent contradiction. This, we might suppose, is something a sophist might say, but it's unworthy of a philosopher. But before dismissing this reading so quickly, we ought to bear in mind that when Parpenides wrote his poem, philosophy did not yet exist as such, and neither did the sophists, or if they did, they were just getting going. And it was the sophists who first studied language closely and called attention to the paradoxes it contains. 
We should also recall that Parmenides' not-too-distant predecessor Heraclitus traded in paradoxical statements such as B51, at variance itself, it agrees with itself, B84A, changing, it is at rest, B57, day and night are one. Aristotle would make short work of these apparent paradoxes by drawing distinctions, pointing out that the words are being used differently each time or with reference to different aspects of the same things or so forth and so on. That is, he would defuse the contradictions by showing that they're only apparent. But this kind of analysis was unknown in Parmenides' time, so it would be anachronistic and unreasonable to expect him to employ it. On the positive side, given his view that what is not cannot be known or expressed in language, he did well to point out that cases of that kind are not uncommon and to call attention to the real or at least potential problems raised by such cases. It was also reasonable for him to suggest that the solution of these problems would be found in a correct understanding of what it is for something to be. In order to do this, we need to leave the world of mortal opinions behind and take another approach. And this is what we get in the first 49 lines of fragment 8. Briefly, I'm proposing a reading of fragment 8 along the following Aristotelianizing lines. The first root of investigation, the root of truth, deals with what Aristotle would later call being qua being, the subject matter of metaphysics. The second root, the root of mortal opinions, deals with the world as it appears to senses, which Aristotle considered to be the subject of natural philosophy or physics, for short. Aristotle believed that there's one world, but that its contents can be regarded in different ways. Something that exists can be regarded for some purposes as a table, or for other purposes as something with a certain weight, or size, or shape, or value, or as something ugly or beautiful or as something made up of certain materials. For some of these ways of regarding it, there are distinct sciences that, to study, thing, that study things from that particular point of view. Geometry studies its shape, ignoring other aspects such as its weight. While physics, what Aristotle calls natural philosophy, studies its weight and other physical properties, for most of which shape is irrelevant. Aristotle holds that physics studies the physical properties of objects, quay things that are, Subject, quay things that are subject to change and ignores their other properties, for example, their aesthetic or moral properties. Likewise, geometry studies existing things, quay spatial magnitudes. It treats their spatial properties, their shapes and sizes, and ignores everything else. Correspondingly, metaphysics studies things quay things that are, disregarding their physical and geometrical properties and consider considering only the properties that hold of them simply due to the fact that they are entities, things that are, of whatever kind. On the view I'm putting forward, Parmenides, like Aristotle, believed in one world, not two. This world is revealed to us unreliably by our senses, unreliably because the senses are unreliable witnesses. Not only are they misleading because they're unreliable, these witnesses also persuade us that they reveal all there is. This belief, too, may be unreliable. Parmenides identifies two ways they mislead us. They lead us to believe that they are our only access to reality, and they give us the impression that what they tell us is accurate. That's the end of fragment one. But they're not accurate, as reason shows. Reason has ways of proving that what they tell us is not always true. But this is a matter of showing that the beliefs they lead us to, lead us to have are inconsistent, and therefore not all correct. It would be fair to point out that this is a matter of rational criticism of ideas got from elsewhere. 
And that's not the same as being a source of correct beliefs, of actual knowledge. Even so, it's a lot. It establishes that we can't take the senses at face value. And once their fallibility is established in any single case, we find ourselves in a different world, since in principle it leaves it a theoretical possibility that even seemingly clear and distinct sensory reports may prove to be incorrect. This is already an important lesson. Unlike many later thinkers, who will remain nameless, uh, Parmenides, perhaps wisely, offers no way out of this quiet, disquieting situation. Nor does he suggest that, that we perceive things that are not. How could we? How could he propose it? Suppose, then, Parmenides did not think that the senses are totally misleading. They give us access to the world, but unreliably. They may mislead us rarely or often, and they may mislead us systematically, but they're not so misleading that they lead us to believe that there are one or more things in the world when, in fact, they are none. To go that far, we'd have to wait for Gorgias. If this is right, that our senses give us misleading reports about things that are, that is, if they do not report things that are as they are, the question arises whether we can determine anything about things that are except that they are. The only other access we have to them is reason. Reason, Parmenides holds, is not subject to the imprecision and unreliability of the senses, and in the best case it can disclose with absolute precision features of the world that the senses cannot apprehend. It may even lead us to adapt to adopt a healthy critical attitude towards the senses, and that's not a bad thing. So the question before us becomes, what, if anything, can reason tell us about things that are, that is infallibly true and does not depend on the senses? Disregarding the senses entails in ignoring or overlooking such things as size, shape, colors, smells, sounds, and also other such things as motions and changes of any sort. It entails focusing on being, to'enai, on what it is for anything to be. And it entails that nothing that is can lack any mark of being, that is to say, of being a thing that is. It means that anything that, I that, anything that is passes a test, that it's not the case both that it is and is not, which is to say, it must fully be. This interpretation promises a straightforward solution to, the prob to a problem traditionally raised in Parmenides. If the senses are unreliable and the root of truth has revealed the truth, what is the point of going on to write the root of mortal opinions? If, the, if there could be no true reliance in, in the senses, why pay attention to them at all? The, sense, the answer is that the senses are not useless even if they're not perfect. There are only access to many features of the world many of which we need to know about in order to survive and live our lives. So it's not pointless, but entirely reasonable for Parmenides to present what he declares to be the best possible account of the world as the senses reveal it. I'll, I'll get back to this later. Now to the Aristotelianizing re reading. Parmenides asserts that what is has several attributes. Several of them are cataloged in the list of semata in uh, uh, Fragment 8, lines 3 to 6, and that's, they're listed there uh, on the uh, bottom of the, top, of the front shade of the, of the handout. I now tend to translate semata as marks instead of, of the familiar translation signs. They're marks in the sense that they're characteristic properties or features of something as a member of a kind. For example, well, 
what would be a mark of someone who devotes too much time to Parmenides? Maybe we can talk about that this evening over, over a drink. Um, okay, the passage goes as follows, and there you have it. What is is ungenerated and imperishable, whole, unique, steadfast, and complete. Nor was it ever, nor will it be, since it is now altogether one holding together. These are the translations in philosophy for Socrates. I know there's lots of other ones. These are the ones that I picked after some thought, but I don't insist on them. Um, these marks are clarified, argued for, and explained in the following 43 lines. Any entity, that is, anything that is, has these marks, all of them. And none of them apply to what is not, obviously. It must be whole, complete, and so forth, or else it's not a genuine entity or even a part of one. A bumper is part of a car, but it is a whole bumper. It must be now, but whether it has come to be or will perish or has been in the past or will be in the future is irrelevant. We're studying it as a thing that is. It must be one, that is, a single thing. It must have no gaps, no holes, which would be occupied by what? Not what is, or there'd be no gaps or holes and not what is not, obviously. Several other descriptors of what is are found in the discussion down to uh, line 49. I associate them with the marks of, B, uh, of this passage, uh, lines 3 to 6, and I divide them into groups as follows, which I hope is on the second page, the back page. Okay, now what I've done here is to, in bold, I divide them into six groups, and... Um, uh, the bold ones are what you have in 8.3, and then there are synonyms or almost synonyms or things in the same ballpark listed below uh, with the references, uh, the textual references to them. So, ungenerated and perishable, and later on he refers to it, as it being without starting or without ceasing. Uh, group, the second group, whole, complete, all together, holding together, and there's a whole raft of things that seem to me to be pointing in the same kind of direction. Um, uh, not divisible or divided, uh, all alike, not at all more inferior, more or inferior in any respect, all full of what is, all holding together, what is draws near to what is, not incomplete, not lacking, whole, complete from all directions, in no way greater or lesser than in another, equal to itself in all directions. It meets uniformly with its limits. And then there are a couple of more things from uh, fragment four. What is clings to what is, and it's not scattered everywhere in every way in order, or every way throughout the cosmos. Um, okay, group C, it never was, nor will it, it will not be, it is now. Um, uh, group D, it's steadfast, uh, which I think, uh, is either another way of saying uh, whole uh, or another way of saying unchanging, which is group F. Group E, it's called unique in 8.4 and also called one in 8.6. Uh, and to this I add, appearing later, motionless and changeless, akineton, uh, and also other phrases, remaining the same and in the same. By itself it lies, it remains there fixed, uh, not altering color. So my task now is to show that these marks of what is are compatible with the Aristotelianizing reason, reading. That is to show that all of them are attributes of anything that is, qua thing that is. I treated group E, unique, earlier, briefly. Since Plato, Parmenides' claim 
that what, what is is one was taken to mean that there's only one thing. But it can equally mean that anything that is, anything that is, is a single thing. And this claim is less remarkable than the way Plato took it, also less challenging and less obviously false. It's therefore the reading that we should prefer unless there's good reason to prefer, prefer the alternative. That's a reason, a minimal charity, I think, is what we ought to do. On Pat's, in my interpretation, Parmenides' claim is taken up seriously by Aristotle, an important passage of the metaphysics. In Metaphysics Beta 4, he declares that the most difficult inquiry and the most important one is whether what is, to'on, and unity, to'hen, are, are the substances of things, and whether each of them, without being anything else, is what is, or unity, respectively, or we must inquire what what is and unity are with the implication that they have some other underlying nature. And he goes on to raise puzzles about this topic in the remainder of that chapter. Gamma 1 addresses the question whether what is and one, tohon, toon, and tohen, are the same thing, since one man, heis anthropos, is the same thing as a man, anthropos. And Later, he extends this identity further. A man that is own anthropos is the same as a man and is one man. Aristotle concludes that what is one is nothing apart from what is. In other words, everything is one thing, and any one thing is a thing that is. And this qualifies one and what is as legitimate topics for metaphysics, since they're attributes of anything that is qua thing that is. Aristotle gets back to this topic more extensively in book Iota. Group B, whole, complete, and so forth, presents no problem for the Aristotelianizing interpretation. Anything that is, is, period. It's not this case that it partially is, or quay the thing that it is, it, that is divided in any way from itself. The place of atremes, steadfast, the sole constituent of, of group D is unclear, but presumably it fits under either F or B, and so doesn't require separate treatment. I prefer to associate it with group F, otherwise there will be nothing in the catalog of marks in lines three to six that points to the attributes motionless and changeless discussed in B8, uh, lines 26 to 30. The remaining groups, A, ungenerated, un imperishable, C, never was, will not be, now, and F, motionless, changeless, require some discussion or rather reorientation. If the Aristotelianizing reason can, accom can accommodate group C, what's that? Never was, will not be, will not be is now. If, if the Aristotelian reason, reading can accommodate that group, then group F, changeless, falls into line since the attributes it denies, motion and change, involve reference to past and future. Motion and change take place over time. Group C, never was, etc., reflects B85. Uh, the presence of inference of the... In no, okay, so here we have... Look at this. Nor was it ever, nor will, will it be, since it is now. The presence of the inference indicator since shows that this line is intended as an argument whose premise is it is now and whose conclusion is it was not ever, nor will it be. This seems to claim that what is has no past or future, and so appears to imply that none of the things we perceive is a thing that is. At first glance, this claim would exclude most things in the world we know. 
And our first glance would also indicate that it's a bad argument, since it's not at all hard to think of counterexamples beginning from oneself. We all are now, also we were yesterday, and I hope we all have every expectation of being around tomorrow. In his important 1966 article, Plato and Parmenides on the Timeless Present, G.E.L. Owen cleverly suggested that Parmenides had in mind what we, what's known as the timeless present, where unlike in tensed uses, the present is not contrasted with past and future. An ordinary tensed use of the verb is found in the true sentence, I am in Indiana. I'll have to change that next time I give the paper, I, I suppose. Um, this sentence is true now, but its truth now says nothing either to preclude or entail that I have been in Indiana at some time in the past or that I will be here at some time in the future. On the other hand, 2 plus 2 is 4 does not leave open the possibility that 2 plus 2 ever was not 4 or that it ever will be not 4. On the other hand, I'm in Indiana can be, un be understood to mean that I'm in Indiana now where now means at the present moment, which is contrasted implicitly with moments in the past or future. These implicit contrasts are not intended or wanted in the case of 2 plus 2 is 4. Is is being used in a different way, similarly to how it's used in generalizations like every human is mortal and in scientific contexts like water is H2O. On this interpretation of B85, the Aristotelianizing reading becomes difficult to maintain. However, there are reasons in the text to resist it. Most obviously, the claim in B85 that it is now. We don't say that 2 plus 2 is now 4, or that humans are mortal now. In the Oxford Handbook paper, I suggested another approach to the problem. Don't stop the argument with since it is now, but rather continue to the end of the phrase, since it is now altogether one holding together, adding in the attributes belonging to group B. The stress then is not so much on when it is, but on the, pro on the property of what is that is expressed elsewhere, that what is fully is, which is to say that it has nothing whatever to do with what is not. Since the past is no longer and the future is not yet, those times and the verbal forms referring to them are somehow infected with what is not. And this is the reason why they're eliminated, while the present is not so infected. The Aristotelianizing interpretation offers a different solution to this problem. If all I'm told about something is that it is, I'm unable to infer anything about its history or future, or even whether it has a past or future. For all I know, the thing might be an animal, a concept, a deity, a number, or an instant. Further, its history and future prospects are irrelevant to its being now. When we consider it not as a human being, but simply as a thing that is, the interpretation I propose does not require, nor was it ever, nor will it be, to be understood as denying that some things have a temporal existence, only that temporality is not under consideration. Aristotle, we recall, has much to say about time, not in the metaphysics, but in the physics. Naturally, in the physics, since Aristotle defines physics, roughly speaking, as the science of things with an inherent principle of change and rest. They move from one place to another and undergo other kinds of changes. Much of the physics is devoted to understanding the nature of change, which takes place in time, as Aristotle recognizes. For this reason, he devotes several chapters of Book 4 to the topic of time. Aristotle also recognizes that there are things that do not change, this is one of his principal reasons for recognizing the needs for a separate science, 
first philosophy, which studies the attributes of the objects of physics and also the objects of mathematics and also of anything else there may be, including everything that belongs to any of Aristotle's cat ten categories of things that are. In the metaphysics, he defines first philosophy as the science of being qua being, or of what is qua thing that is, on the grounds that there are other kinds of sub substances than those studied by physics. That's in Epsilon 1. I don't mean to suggest that Parmenides anticipated all of Aristotle's ideas. However, on the view that he, he supposed that we owe our belief in time to our senses, and his project is to see what could be learned independently of the fallible senses about anything that is, it's reasonable that he exclude considerations of time. Treating anything merely qua thing that is has to do with what we can infer about it from the fact that it is, that it is now, without regard to what it may have been in the past, what it will be or can be in the future. Considerations of time are irrelevant. These considerations also count for group F, motionless and changeless. Changeless. If past and future are irrelevant to the status of something being a thing that is, then so is change, which takes place over time. If all I know about something is that it is, I cannot infer whether or not it's moving or changing, or whether it's the sort of thing that can move or change. The same reasoning applies to the attributes of group A, ungenerated and indestructible as well. But there is more to say. It's important to take notice of the quite different arguments that Aristotle uses in lines 9 through 20 to prove that what is is ungenerated and imperishable. This is a series of arguments about generation out of and perishing into what is not. These are the only plausible candidates for deductive arguments in B8. They're certainly the only arguments in B8 that made an impression on Parmenides' successors. The later pre-Socratic thinkers accepted Parmenides' conclusion that there is no generation out of what is not, sometimes paraphrasing his own arguments, and this became an axiom for later pre-Socratic thinkers and for Plato, Aristotle, and other ancient philosophers as well. We may wonder why Aristotle felt the need to hammer this point home so hard. If his concern was simply with the present, Aristotle, I think Parmenides, Sorry, that Parmenides. See, see how this, this is. Uh, uh, I, I've convinced myself that we're talking about it. We may wonder why Parmenides felt felt the need to hammer this point home so hard with all these all these particular arguments. If his concern was 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 simply with the present, not the past or the future, he had no need of these arguments at all. For the same reasons I have ascribed to the absence for arguments for the attributes of Group F. My response to this challenge has two steps. First, Parmenides argues against generation out of what is not, not out of what is. However, in typical cases of generation, something comes to be out of, not out of nothing, but out of things that already are. A house is made of already existing bricks. Bricks are made out of already existing clay. In this kind of generation, we have a change. Perhaps it's a matter of rearrangement or of combining or separating, but in any case, it's a process that takes place over time. This kind of generation has already been eliminated. However, these, those arguments do not eliminate generation out of what is not, which is what he attacks in these several arguments I'm talking about now. It doesn't make sense to talk of a, about a process of moving from what is not to what is or vice versa. Generation out of what is not seems to be instantaneous. One instant it's not there, and then there it is. 
After the first instant when there is something that is, any development into something bigger or more complex or anything else would involve ordinary change, change from one thing that is to another thing that is, either by growth or alteration or motion and so forth. We've taken care of those. But, the mo but if we ask when a change from what is not to what is, or vice versa, occurs, things get tricky. At least they do if we assume that time is continuous so that no two instants are next to one another. But is there any reason to suppose that Parmenides made this assumption or that he had any concept of continuity? To be sure, his, follow Zenor, his follower Zeno posed paradoxes that broached this topic, but it's not at all clear to me that he knew how to, how to solve them. Even if he did, this would not prove that Parmenides was aware of the solutions or even the problems. Nothing in Parmenides' text suggests that he was. So it's likely, or at least plausible, that Parmenides didn't, did not. If we suppose he did not, then we can understand why he devoted so much attention to proving the impossibility of generation out of what is not. Let's suppose that he thought that in this kind of generation, something, call it X, or he if you prefer, comes into existence from what is not at instant B. Prior to B, X didn't exist. There was no X. This situation right, held right up to B right up to the last instant before B. Just for being inno innovative, let's call this prior instant A. There was no time between A and B. So it took no time for X to come to B. It just happened. One instant there was no X, and the next instant there was. The same kind of account would also hold for perishing. The denial of past and future, which accounts for the marks in group C and F, doesn't cover cases of instantaneous generation and perishing. On the other hand, the arguments in lines 12 to 21 do just this. My proposal here is that this is the reason for their presence and careful elaboration at this point in, of the root of truth. They establish the true truth of the marks of group A. So generation and perishing of any kind are eliminated on the grounds that they are irrelevant to the study of things quite things that are. Of course, things that the senses perceive are generated and are perishable, but there are or could be other kinds of things which aren't, numbers, for instance. In this connection, it's worth recalling that Aristotle's work on this subject, on generation and corruption, is not part of his metaphysical theory, but is one of his fundamental works on what he calls physics. Okay. So far, I've tried to convince you, or at least get on the table, that Parmenides' marks accord with the Aristotelianizing interpretation. Now I'll try to show that this interpretation permits a satisfactory resolution to the problem I mentioned before. Namely, if there's no reliability in the senses, and if reality is as Parmenides describes it, what was his purpose in writing the second part of his poem known as the Root of Mortal Opinions? On the traditional interpretation, this is a pressing question indeed. If Parmenides really held that there's only one thing and this is ungenerated, unchanging, completely uniform and so on, then it has nothing to do with what we perceive reality to be. This raises the question how any account of perceived reality could be better than any other. And yet, Parmenides says his is the best. But if Parmenides was doing what I'm proposing, then it makes as good sense for him to give an account of the world as it appears to us as it did for Aristotle. On this line of thought, the account he offers in The Root of Mortal Opinions is not a failed competitor with The Root of Truth as an account of reality. It's an account which Parmenides says is the best possible account of the world as it appears to us through our senses. 
The two roots are presented in separate accounts because of their differing epistemic value. The root of truth presents a view that must be true because it's certified by reason, whereas the root of mortal opinions reveals how things appear to the senses, in which there is no true reliance. Why then did Parmenides go to the trouble of presenting a new account of the world of appearances? The alternatives would have been either to refer his audience to some previous account of the world or to declare that it makes no difference. I'll take these options up in turn. First, what early accounts were there? Well, there were accounts in Hesiod, I suppose, and if you want to get more philosophical, kind of, you can say that we have accounts in maybe Thales, certainly in Eximander, Anaximenes, Xenophanes, Heraclitus, and perhaps the Pythagoreans. But these guys were far from offering complete accounts, and they were all open to obvious objections, and no one of them was obviously superior to the others. So it would not have been at all clear which one Parmenides might convincingly prefer. Second, saying that it makes no difference how we understand the world around us would hardly persuade anyone. Of course, of course it makes a difference. Even if our world consists of appearances, there's a good deal of consistency and predictability in those appearances, and things will be better for us if we have some way, even a way that is frequently correct, even though fallible, to predict, to, to predict events, understand them, and explain them. In this situation, Parmenides was obligated to say something, something he could think of as an improvement on what earlier thinkers had proposed. He says as much at the end of B8. I declare to you all the ordering as it appears so that no mortal judgment may ever overtake you. He goes on to offer a dualistic cosmology of fire and nights, or, or sometimes light and night, each characterized by an enriched description that ascribes to it a plurality of opposing powers. Fire is ethereal, mild, and light. Night is dark, dense, and heavy. That is, the two elements are not only opposed substances, quasi-substances, but possess opposite characteristics. It might not be too much to suppose that the three oppositions he presents, ethereal and dark, dense and mild, light and heavy, are meant to be only suggestive of a much wider range of opposites found in the objects that constitute the world around us. An enriched pair of principles like these will be better situated to account for all the variety of things in the world than the monistic account ascribed to Thales and Anaximenes, and better even than the perhaps, perhaps dualistic accounts of Anaximander, whose duality is left unexplained, and Xenophanes, and certainly than the Pythagorean's numerical account, even supposing that it had been formulated so early. If so, Parmenides would be sketching a much more plausible picture of the cosmos and its working than anyone else to date. Of course, I don't mean to say that Parmenides held the same metaphysical views as Aristotle. There's no reason to think that Parmenides had specific views about the nature of mathematical entities or a theory of categories, but several things point in that direction. His clear <coughs> distinction between reason and the senses as sources of knowledge, his recognition that the senses are not always reliable, and very likely his recognition that we may regard them as more reliable than they are, and so be misled. His perhaps overly optimistic belief that reason, or at least carefully applied reason, is infallible. And very likely his recognition that we use reason to judge when the re senses are not being re reliable. Finally, his recognition that reason can produce a kind of absolute certainty, at least about some things, that the senses cannot. 
when all these are put together, they don't inevitably lead to an Aristotelian metaphysics. But supposing that Parmenides thought that there was a single world, as Aristotle did, may not the root of truth and the root of mortal opinions, not, may they not be appropriately different ways of looking at it? I think that the Aristotelianizing model is precisely what's needed to come to the rescue. Aristotle believed that there is time, past, present, and future, and that there's motion and other changes, and that many, other thing, many things are generated or perish. And he, think, and he dealt with these features of reality in his works on the natural world, but excluded them from first philosophy, at least partly, because as Aristotle sees it, there's more to reality than physics could dream of. Perhaps Parmenides saw it that way too. Thank you. Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Terity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo underscore Purdue.